Early in the morning of 22nd January, the remnants of the 297th Infantry Division were pushed back from the Voroponovo sector towards the southern outskirts of Stalingrad. Major Bruno Gebele and the survivors of his battalion awaited the next onslaught. Their only artillery support consisted of several mountain howitzers commanded by a sergeant who was told to hold his fire until the Russians were between 200 and 250 yards away. Shortly before 7 o'clock, as the remnants of Gebele's battalion sheltered from artillery fire in their bunkers, a sentry gave the alert. Herr Mayor, Sie kommen! Gebele had only time to yell, Raus! His soldiers threw themselves into their fire positions. A mass of snow-suited infantry was charging toward them, baying, Ura! 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 The first ones were only 40 yards away when the German grenadiers opened fire with light machine guns, rifles, and machine pistols. The Russians suffered terrible losses. Gebela later recalled, The first wave was killed or left lying there, the second also, and then a third wave came. In front of our position, the Soviet dead piled up and served as a sort of sandbag wall for us. End quote. The Russians did not abandon the attack. They simply changed its direction and concentrated against the flanking detachments. At 9.30, they broke through the Romanians over to the left. Eventually, having held out for seven hours, Gebele saw that a Russian flag had appeared on a water tower to their rear. They had been outflanked. He gathered the last survivors of his battalion and led them back toward the center of Stalingrad. Inside the city, they were shaken by the scenes of destruction and military collapse. It was bitterly cold, wrote one of them, and surrounded by such chaos, it felt as if the world was coming to an end. That story comes from an excellent history by Anthony Beaver called Stalingrad, the Fateful Siege of 1942 to 1943. first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the eastern front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting, as always, from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa. This episode, we're going to close out the subject that's dominated the podcast since last summer, the Battle of Stalingrad. And rightfully dominated because it is the biggest, bloodiest battle in human history. But we're also going to look at action farther away from Stalingrad, but which also had an impact on that battle and on the war on the Eastern Front as a whole, the Siege of Leningrad. Last episode, we left the German 6th Army awaiting the death blow at Stalingrad, more than five months since her seemingly unstoppable army swept across the steppe and raised the city, causing hundreds of thousands of civilian and military casualties the Germans still never managed to take the entire city on the Volga. Despite astounding savagery on both sides, despite unprecedented casualties on both sides, the Red Army managed to cling to a narrow strip of land on the west bank of the Volga River and dug into cellars and the ruins of the factory district in the north. They also famously made a ruined building in the center of the city into a fortress which became known as Pavlov's house. A sniper duel became a legendary part of this immense battle, something captured in stories and movies. Then on 19th November 1942, the Soviets launched their counteroffensive. Operation Uranus brought five fresh Red Armies to attack from two directions, penetrating not the Germans' own defensive lines, but those of their overextended flanks held by their Axis comrades from the Hungarian, Italian, Croatian, and Romanian forces. In a couple of days, the two pincers met on the Don River, encircling the German 6th Army in and around Stalingrad. The Germans called this encirclement a Kessel, or cauldron. As detailed on last episode, the officers there in Stalingrad on the uh, steppe around 
Stalingrad, knew their situation was not sustainable. They asked for orders or permission to leave Stalingrad and retreat, but Hitler refused. Hermann Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, promised that the Air Force could supply the 6th Army by air. So, the commander-in-chief of the 6th Army in Stalingrad, General Friedrich Paulus, told the Luftwaffe the Army's needs. That is, 600 tons of ammunition, replacement equipment, fuel, and food every single day. After all, there were 300,000 men in the cauldron in, in November. Then it was down to 200,000, and by end of December, 180,000. And at the point we're at now, the end of January, it's less than that. Even so, even with the promises, the Luftwaffe never came close to meeting these needs. Most days, they managed to bring in less than one-third of that required amount. So, increasingly, the rations for the soldiers in the castle had to be reduced, reaching and getting below starvation levels, 100 grams of bread or frozen meat per day. The trapped Germans tried to keep up their morale, but their numbers kept shrinking and the enemy bombing, artillery fire, and sniping never let up. And they could not bring in reinforcements. A rescue attempt by the 4th Panzer Army, called Operation Winter Storm, failed to penetrate the Soviet encirclement. After the Germans rejected an ultimatum that offered humane treatment in return for surrender, as detailed last episode, the Red Armies under General Konstantin Rokossovsky launched its final offensive on the city, Operation Ring, on 10th January 1943. As I described in the previous episode, Red Armies overran the main German airfield at Potomnik, so the Germans withdrew into a smaller and smaller castle, leaving their wounded behind. After a break for a few days to regroup around their new lines surrounding a greatly reduced castle, Rokossovsky launched the final assault on the 20th of January. The Soviets quickly overran the German second airfield in the castle at Gumrak. Once again, the Germans retreated, leaving wounded men in their makeshift hospital in the care of two orderlies and a chaplain. The few survivors after the Red Army swept past were moved to a POW camp some 10 days later. So now the Germans had only a single airfield within uh, the castle to receive any supplies. It was called Stalingradsky near the suburbs of Stalingrad, but its runway was too short for bigger planes. Plus, all the smashed, crashed German planes around the runway made it dangerous to land for anything. Not to mention the almost continuous Soviet fire. So as I mentioned last episode, by this point, the Luftwaffe wasn't even bothering to land. Whatever planes did manage to get through the Soviet anti-aircraft fire and the Soviet fighters, just parachuted supplies down to the starving men. Which was also a problem because many times the, the soldiers could not get to the parachuted supplies for fear of getting shot or blown up, or they were just too weak. Also on 20th January, the Red Army pushed the German 297th Infantry Division back from Voroplanovo, southwest of Stalingrad proper, into its southern districts as described in that opening story. The German commanders asked for permission again to surrender or withdraw somehow from the city to maybe fight their own way out, to save their lives to fight another day. And once again, Hitler refused. Quote, Surrender out of the question. Troops fight on to the end. If possible, hold reduced fortress with troops still battle-worthy. Bravery and tenacity of fortress have provided the opportunity to establish a new front and launch counterattacks. Sixth Army has thus fulfilled its historical contribution in the greatest passage in German history. End quote. At the end of January, there were 100,000 Axis men left alive in Stalingrad, including the non-German Axis troops. This is down from a total of some 300,000, actually over 300,000 in August. 
two-thirds of this massive army has been eliminated, killed, wounded, missing, captured. Some individual units, battalions and companies and so on, were down to only a few dozen men. For example, the 14th Panzer Division, and remember, division typically has a few thousand men, had only 80 able to fight by the end of January. Of the total number of survivors in the city or in the Kessel, between 20 and 40,000 were sick from dysentery, typhus, malnutrition, frostbite, and other diseases associated with a siege in winter, and thus unable to fight. They had no more food, no ammunition, no fuel. As a result, they shivered in a second cold winter, losing more men every day to starvation and frostbite. What passed for hospitals were tunnels and caves dug into the Tsaritsa Gorge, which stank of human filth. There was no ventilation, almost no light. Often, when medics changed what wound dressings they could, they would find detached fingers and toes stuck to the bandages or gauze. Along with the invaders, the enemy forces, in Stalingrad, there were still, incredibly enough, some civilian survivors including, believe it or not, thousands of children. How they managed to survive with less food and fuel than the Germans is mystifying. On 24th January, Hitler's headquarters ordered the 6th Army to hold on for just a few more days because Hitler had a plan. Well, more of a fantasy, and I'll get to that. But the men retorted, hold on, hold on for what? Everyone knew the 6th Army could not hold on. Manstein phoned Hitler to beg him to allow the 6th Army to surrender. He said, quote, The Army's sufferings would bear no relation to any advantage derived from continuing to tie down the enemy's forces. End quote. Hitler still refused, saying that each hour the men in Stalingrad continued to fight helped the other areas of the Eastern Front. And anyway, surrendering would be futile. He said, both ironically and truthfully, quote, the Russians never keep any agreements, end quote. Striking, isn't it? How... The situation in Stalingrad, comparing the two sides, has completely reversed from the previous August, just five months earlier. When the Germans first arrived, they were fresh, powerful, unstoppable. They had no limits, it seemed, to their ammunition, although they did have a problem with fuel. The Soviets were not ready. They didn't have enough men in the city. They didn't have enough resources, they didn't have enough food, they didn't have enough ammunition. But they managed to fix that. On the 25th, General Moritz von Dreber, commander of the 297th Infantry Division, that was mentioned at the beginning of this, of this episode, broke the orders, and he surrendered with whatever was left of his division in the southern sector of Stalingrad. The Red Army colonel who took his surrender asked, where are your regiments? Von Dreber is said to have looked around at his few remaining exhausted and frostbitten men and replied, Do I really have to explain to you, Colonel, where my regiments are? Apparently, the hardest thing to kill is aristocratic condescension. That same day, General von Seidlitz, commander of the 51st Corps, gave his subordinate officers permission to surrender. Hearing this, General Paulus relieved Seidlitz of his command. On the other hand, General Walter Heitz, commander of the 8th Corps, ordered that anyone who attempted to surrender should be shot. He actually ordered his men to fire on General Seidlitz and others when they surrendered. Two officers were killed. But while this was happening, Heitz's headquarters had already prepared their white flags. Heitz himself surrendered a few days later. On 26 January, the Red Army broke through at the Meme of Kurgan, reaching the Volga River for another reunion, this time with the 62nd Army on the banks of the river. 
This action divided the Kessel into two, a larger pocket in the northern factory district and a smaller one in the central part of the city. This is where Paulus's headquarters had moved into the basement of the Univermeg department store, an icon of the Battle of Stalingrad. You can see pictures on the webpage for this episode. By the last days of January, so many units, what remained of them, were surrendering en masse in Stalingrad that the NKVD, the security police, and the Red Army intelligence officers were swamped with senior officers to interrogate. One interrogator was Captain and later Major Nikolai Dyatlenko, the Ukrainian officer who had been one of the truce envoys that had been turned away by the 6th Army Command on 9th January, as described last episode. The German senior command was apparently completely fatalistic by the end of this month. They had no hope. There was no way they could hold out any longer, no way they could fight their way out. On 29 January, the 6th Army's headquarters sent a congratulatory signal back. Quote, to the Fuhrer, the 6th Army greet their Fuhrer on the anniversary of your taking power. You see, the 30th of January was the day in 1933 that the Nazi Party and Hitler came to political power in Germany. Anyway, back to the quote. The swastika flag still flies over Stalingrad. May our struggle be an example to present and future generations never to surrender in hopeless situations so that Germany will be victorious in the end. End quote. Were they being ironic? I'll let you decide. The next day, the actual anniversary of Hitler's seizing power Gehring, the head of the Luftwaffe, which had failed the men in Stalingrad so badly, broadcast a speech comparing them to the Spartans at Thermopylae. The men, who were near radios, turned him off. Hitler's speech came a little later, because it was delayed by RAF bombing. The only thing he said about Stalingrad was, quote, The heroic struggle of our soldiers on the Volga should be an exhortation to everyone to do his maximum for Germany's freedom and our nation's future, end quote. Yikes. And Hitler refused to give Paulus permission to surrender. What he did do, though, he did something. He promoted Paulus to field marshal. Yay! Paulus and everyone else knew what this meant. Slight increase in pay? Maybe. But no German field marshal had ever been taken prisoner. In other words, Paulus was supposed to kill himself. But he said, quote, I have no intention of shooting myself with this bohemian corporal, end quote. Wow, aristocratic condescension, and he wasn't even an aristocrat. By early morning, 31st January, the Red Army had total control over the center of Stalingrad. The Germans were now broken into three small pockets, including Paulus's headquarters in the Univermag department store basement. The 64th Red Army started the day with an intense artillery bombardment of the downtown area clearing the few buildings and basements that remained with grenades and flamethrowers. At 7.35 a.m., the Red Army moved in on the department store. The last German holdouts, not defenders because they were the attackers, remember, laid down their weapons. Von Manstein's headquarters outside the encirclement received the signal, we are surrendering. But the people of Germany received a different message from Berlin. Quote, in Stalingrad, the situation is unchanged. The defenders, some defenders, spirit is unbroken, end quote. The first Red Army officer in the 6th Army's headquarters was First Lieutenant Fyodor Ilchenko, followed by staff officers who came to negotiate the surrender uh, with General Arthur Schmidt, Paulus's chief of staff. Historians like to quote one of the Soviet officers who entered the basement, quote, it was unbelievably filthy. You couldn't get through the front or back doors. The filth came up to your chest, along with human waste and who knows what else. The stench was unbelievable. End quote. During these negotiations, Paulus apparently stayed in a private room. His adjutant, Colonel Wilhelm Adam, shuttled back and forth to keep him up to date. The reason for this was, some historians speculate, to give Paulus some distance from the actual surrender. Others believe it's because Paulus was close to collapse. He had been suffering from dysentery for weeks and was clearly depressed. And don't forget, he had been ordered to kill himself. Whatever his state of mind, whatever his orders, Paulus definitely did not shoot himself. 
That's what led to the iconic photograph of the end of the Battle of Stalingrad, where Paulus, his chief of staff, General Schmidt, and his adjutant, Colonel Adam, are stepping out across the shattered city. Journalists on that day or shortly after noticed how thin, gaunt, and wan Paulus appeared. But the other senior officers, in the words of the journalists, did, quote, not look as if they had missed many meals, end quote in contrast to the soldiers who died of starvation and exposure. The northern pocket, the larger one, hung on with remnants of six divisions under General Strecker. Their headquarters were in the ruins of the tractor factory. Four Red Armies concentrated their firepower, destroying every bunker at point-blank range. Sometimes, tanks would drive right up, push their barrels into the entrance, and fire. Strecker also refused to commit suicide and forbade his junior officers from doing so. But he also refused to surrender. His headquarters sent a final radio message to their commander, Manstein, at Army Group Dawn headquarters on 2nd February. Quote, 11th Army Corps, with its six divisions, has performed its duty down to the last man in heavy fighting. Long live Germany, end quote. Note that Strecker did not mention Hitler. Strecker still refused his men's request to surrender. But when Red Army soldiers appeared at the entrance to his command bunker, Strecker offered no resistance. His chief of staff yelled at the Soviets to fetch a general, someone more appropriate to accept their surrender. And that was it. On 2nd February 1943, the Battle of Stalingrad was over after five months. A resounding defeat for the Germans, at an immense cost to the Russians. With Strecker's surrender, signal flares along the Volga announced the end of the battle. Soldiers brought food across the river for the few surviving civilians who started to emerge tentatively from their shelters. Antony Beaver writes, quote, Very little that was recognizable remained from the city which had existed before Richthofen's bombers appeared on the August afternoon. Stalingrad was now little more than a battered and burned skeleton. About the only landmark left standing was the fountain with statues of little boys and girls dancing round it. This seemed an unsettling miracle after so many thousands of children had perished in the ruins all around. End quote. With the arrest of Paulus and Strecker, all the Axis soldiers became POWs. Many, as you can guess, did not survive the experience. Despite the Stavka memo, prisoners were taken on long marches. Anyone who could not keep up was shot when they collapsed. The Red Army soldiers took a savage revenge on the Hiwis, the Soviet citizens who, voluntarily or not, had worked for the Axis invaders. Now it's time to shift our attention away from this battle that has dominated this podcast for months. But before we do that, let's take a break for coffee and snacks and just a stretch. See you in a minute. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you through Patreon. So if you like this podcast, why not subscribe or follow or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it? And please consider supporting it at any amount through Patreon. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner. Thanks. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names like Philip and Agatha were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army. Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War.
Thanks for coming back. So as I said, after the end of the Battle of Stalingrad, we're shifting our attention north to the opposite extremity of the Eastern Front, the city of Leningrad, now known as St. Petersburg, the city that endured a legendary thousand-day siege during the Second World War, a siege that continues during our focus time here in January 1943. Leningrad had come under siege in September 1941, so two months after the launch of Operation Barbarossa. Army Group North was the fastest moving of the three German army groups that attacked at the opening of that war in 1941. A year on in the war, Leningrad remained one of Hitler's major targets. He wanted the city erased from the face of the earth and turned into a park for rich, powerful Nazis. As I described in episode 12, so if you want to know more about the siege of Leningrad, I described the beginning of it in episode 12. And as I mentioned then, the winter, the first winter of the siege, 1941 to 1942, was beyond brutal for the people of the city and for its Red Army defenders as well. They were almost completely cut off, thereby limiting extremely any resupply. The people were forbidden to retreat by Stalin. Some were evacuated, some civilians were evacuated, but evacuation was almost as dangerous or sometimes even more dangerous than staying because the German Luftwaffe would bomb the uh, evacuation trains. So without enough food and fuel to come in, the people starved during the winter. By the winter, the only route into the city was over Lake Ladoga, where boats were even more vulnerable to air attack. Things got a little better in the winter when the lake froze over and the Russians could bring in supplies on sleds and trucks, but it wasn't enough. Over that winter, rumors of cannibalism spread through the civilian areas. A quarter of a million people starved to death. Stalin sent Georgi Zhukov to reorganize an effective defense of the city. Zhukov ordered civilians to build tank traps and other defenses around the city, when the Germans pushed captured Russian women forward to beg the defenders to surrender, Zhukov ordered them to shoot their grandmothers. Is there any lower than this that humanity can sink to? Hold on, we haven't finished describing this war yet. As you can see in Map 2 on the webpage for this episode, by 1942 the city was still almost completely surrounded with Germans controlling the southern shore of the Gulf of Finland and then along an arc around the city to hit a bit of the southern shore of Lake Ladoga at the town of Schlüsselburg. And to the north, Finnish forces were penetrating or had penetrated down to a line from the Gulf of Finland to Lake Ladoga on the north. So that created what was known as the bottleneck, that narrow area that the Germans held between two major Red Army fronts or groups of armies, the Leningrad Front stationed in and around, you guessed it, Leningrad, and the Volkov Front named for the river that defined part of its boundary. Now, it's not like nothing happened throughout 1942 here. There was continuous fighting in the north. But overall, the front lines didn't change all that much. Not for lack of trying, though. Major factories in Leningrad churned out weapons, ammunition, and even tanks. Tanks that often drove, unpainted, off the assembly line directly to the front line. While the Germans' objective was to raise Leningrad, the Soviets equally wanted to liberate it. And they tried, over and over again. In January 1942, the newly formed 2nd Shock Army launched the Luban Offensive. From east of Leningrad, it penetrated across the Volkov River into a deep pocket on the west side, some 50 square kilometers. But that's as far as they got, and then they stalled. On the 2nd of March, so this is a, a month and a half into this operation, the Germans began Operation Predator, cutting off the 2nd Shalk Army, preventing them from retreat. Then they left the Soviets in the pocket to starve. A Red Army soldier in this operation 
wrote his memories, which were then captured in the book Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege by Anna Reed. Quote, We were completely helpless since we had no ammunition, no petrol, no tobacco, not even salt. Worst of all was having no medical help, no medicine, no bandages. You want to help the wounded, but how? All our underwear has gone for bandages long ago. The main problem, though, was hunger, oppressive, never-ending hunger. End quote. The second shock army suffered until May when, with new commanders, they tried to break out of the encirclement. Five of 12 divisions and four of 10 brigades made it. Some 2,000 men surrendered or deserted, and 20,000 were still trapped in the pocket. The Germans then subjected the remnants to an unrelenting bombardment. By the 21st of June, so the anniversary of Operation Barbarossa, the few survivors tried to break out again. Most of them were killed or captured, including the Second Shock Army's commander, General Andrei Vlasov. In captivity, he turned against Stalin and proposed raising an army among Russian POWs to fight against the USSR. Predictably, the Soviets branded him a traitor and tried to erase the memory of the Second Shock Army, in some ways. But in other ways, they've come back, as we'll see. As the weather warmed in 1942, conditions for the Leningrad citizens improved a little. An ambitious program to plant household gardens produced tons of fresh vegetables and fruit to feed the civilians and the armies. But that did not mean the siege got easier. After Erich von Manstein's 11th Army captured Sevastopol in July 1942, and you can refresh your memory about that in episodes 27 and 28, Hitler sent them north to the Leningrad front for the final destruction of the city in Operation Nordlicht, or Northern Light. With the 11th Army came those immense German railway guns named Gustav, Dora, and Karl, huge cannons that had to be transported on specially made railway cars. They bombarded the city with shells weighing 800 kilograms or 1,800 pounds. On the 9th of August in 1942, the city defied the siege and the bombardment by performing a new symphony composed by Dmitry Shostakovich, number seven, called Leningrad. Now, Operation Nordlich proper was supposed to start on the 14th of September, 1942. This would be about a year after Army Group North first reached the outskirts of the city and started the siege. But the Red Army beat the Germans to the punch for once with what became known as the Sinyavino Offensive. On the 19th of August, the Leningrad Front, which included what was left of the 8th, 23rd, and 48th Armies, the Baltic Fleet, and some other groupings of forces, launched its attack eastward across the Neva River. A week later, on the 27th of August, as the German 6th Army moved into Stalingrad far to the south, the Volkov Front launched its attack from the eastern side of the German salient at Schlüsselburg. The Volkov Front, including the remnants of the 2nd Shock Army, the 4th Guards Rifle Corps, and the 8th Army, began its push west. They managed to push toward the Sinovino Heights, hills east of Leningrad, east and, and south, really. But the Germans reorganized and brought up reinforcements, such as the 12th Panzer Army and the 96th Infantry Division. This was the first combat use of the new Tiger tank. And uh, results were kind of mixed. At the same time, the Luftwaffe maintained air superiority. The Red Army penetrated as far as 9 kilometers, but by mid-September, the operation degenerated into a stalemate. The Germans launched a counterattack on the 21st of September with six divisions. They retook the ground gained by the Red Army in the summer, but endured heavy casualties. By mid-October, the Lions were back where they had been before, at a cost of nearly 50,000 lives. In September alone, 5,893 Germans died, with a grand total of 26,000 casualties. That's dead, wounded, captured, and missing. On the Soviet side, the casualties were almost five times greater. 113,000 casualties through the operation, including over 40,000 dead and 12,000 captured. This 
prompted some rethinking on the Soviet side. But while the Germans' losses were numerically smaller, they had a greater impact on the forces. The Germans went over to a defensive posture for the winter, much as they had done the winter before. So, at the beginning of 1943, Leningrad's second siege winter was nowhere near as horrifying as the first. The Red Army itself, in and around Leningrad, was in much better shape, but with forces coming from other areas farther to the east now fully redeployed on the Western Front, allowing them to rebuild their numbers. Even women were fighting in main combat roles. By the end of the war, about 800,000 women will have served in the Red Army, not just as secretaries or information officers, but as snipers, scouts, pilots, and frontline combat. Local weapons production was also ramping up steadily, supplying submachine guns, rifles, and the iconic critical T-34 tanks. The Lend-Lease program was delivering thousands of tons of food, clothing, ammunition, weapons, trucks, other vehicles, and even railway locomotives. And let's not forget that the population of Leningrad was, by beginning of 1943, a fifth of its pre-war level. Tragically, that's partly due to the mass death of the winter of 1942. But it's also partly due to successful evacuations over Lake Ladoga or by rail when it could happen. As the remaining civilians hunkered down in the cold once again, they had much more food and fuel than a year earlier. More homes had access to water and electricity. And the winter, this time around, in this part of Russia, was milder than the one before. Like the Sinovino offensive the previous summer, Operation Iskra, or Spark, involved the Leningrad Front and the Volkov Front, working together to attack the German bottleneck position at Schlüsselberg on the south shore of Lake Ladoga. The difference was that, instead of attacking at the Sinovino Heights to the south, this attack, in January 1943, stayed closer to the lake. You see, the Sinovino offensive could have, if it had gone according to plan, allowed the Red Army to encircle the German positions. But attacking in that direction toward the hills also left them vulnerable to flanking from the north, which is what happened. So Iskra, then, would stay closer to the lake and prevent any flanking from the north. The planning for this operation was conducted under strict security. Only the most senior officers knew what was going on. Redeployments happened at night or in bad weather, so they wouldn't be seen as easily. The launch was delayed from the 1st of January to the 12th because the ice on the Neva River at the beginning of the year was too thin to bear the weight of tanks. Remember, it was a relatively mild winter for Russia. The Soviets installed ingenious pontoon bridges just under the ice. In the nights just before the launch of the operation, units of the Leningrad and Volkov fronts moved into position. Zhukov flew in on the 10th of January to coordinate the battle for the Stavka, whatever that means. Although we have to admit, Zhukov has had an immense record of successes, peppered with some failures in several parts of the war to this point. Patreon supporters, by the way, can listen to a bonus series on Zhukov's career right now. At 9.30 a.m. on 12th January, as other Red armies crushed the castle around Stalingrad, the Leningrad Front and the Volkov Front began intense artillery bombardment on both sides of the bottleneck near Schlüsselberg. After a big finish of Katusha rockets, the infantry moved in from both sides at the same time. From the west side, the Leningrad Front's 136th and 268th Rifle Divisions, with supporting tanks and artillery, penetrated three kilometers over the Neva River. However, the attack on Schlüsselberg itself failed. Still, the Soviets had a bridgehead now. From the eastern side, the Volkov Front's 2nd Shock Army, what was left of it, managed to penetrate two kilometers between two German strong points. Over the next five days, the Soviets advanced slowly through the German defenses, taking heavy casualties but repelling German counterattacks. Bad weather hindered the Red Air Force, but doubtlessly hindered the Luftwaffe as well. The Soviets used their ski troops to good effect, circling the Germans and coming up from behind. At 9.30 in the morning on 18th January, 
the two fronts met, the 123rd Rifle Division from the Leningrad Front and the 372nd Division of the disgraced 2nd Shock Army from the Volkov Front. They embraced at Workers' Settlements Numbers 1 and 5, which were actually two gulags just south of Schlüsselburg. By the late afternoon, the Red Army cleared the Germans out of Schlüsselburg and the village of Liebka. For the next three days, the Red Army eliminated German forces they had encircled, meaning they killed them all. And they pushed into the forest south of Lake Ladoga. However, before they got very far, German reinforcements stalled the advance. The Soviets hadn't captured a huge amount of land, but they had opened up another corridor into Leningrad. To the Leningraders who had endured a year and a half of one of the worst sieges in history, this was a cause for celebration. On 18 January, the day that the two fronts met, posters all over the city proclaimed, the blockade is broken, the blockade is broken. A citizen wrote, what happiness, what joy, all night nobody slept. Some wept for joy, some celebrated, some just shouted, we're no longer cut off from the motherland, we share a pulse. End quote. The people of Leningrad could still hear shelling in the distance, and actually not that far away. And there were still air raids and still shortages, but they felt as if it was the beginning of the end. The Soviets quickly built another rail line through that narrow corridor and brought in supplies and evacuated more civilian and wounded soldiers. The first train to arrive was greeted with a brass band. In addition to butter for Leningrad's children, as well as lots of other food, it carried a shipment of kittens to address the rat problem. So what was the impact of these two liberations or near liberations happening close to the same time? Well, the news of the liberation of Stalingrad reverberated across the USSR, in Germany, and around the world. In Germany, the effect was depressing. The German media did not even mention Stalingrad for several days after the surrender. It was not until the 16th of January that they in admitted to the German people that the army in Stalingrad had been surrounded. So that was more than a month after it happened. But then the media insisted that they would bravely achieve victory somehow. Then, after the surrender, the propaganda ministry insisted that not a single man had survived the Kessel. Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi head of propaganda, went into overdrive, vilifying the Bolsheviks, and ordering the media not to use the word Russians. He also ordered the German media to portray the 6th Army as mythical heroes. The official communique read in part, True to its oath of allegiance, the 6th Army under the exemplary leadership of Field Marshal Paulus has been annihilated by the overwhelming superiority of enemy numbers. The sacrifice of the 6th Army was not in vain. As the bulwark of our historic European mission it has held out against the onslaught of six Soviet armies. They died so that Germany might live. End quote. German propaganda went on to exhort the population to total war. Every aspect of life would be devoted to war and nothing else. In February, Goebbels called for mass mobilization of the entire population, as well as closing sports venues and fashion magazines, nightclubs, luxury restaurants, and anything else deemed unnecessary. He even wanted to order German women not to dress fashionably, not to wear makeup, and not to have their hair styled. But Hitler stopped that part of it. He thought women should be decorative. This apparently would help maintain the morale of the troops. Yeah, despite it all being his own fault, the Fuhrer took the loss of Stalingrad and the Sixth Army extremely badly. It's recorded in Anthony Tucker Jones' book, Slaughter on the Eastern Front. Before the disaster at Stalingrad, Hitler would organize an evening of record music from time to time. His favorites were Beethoven symphonies, extracts from Wagner operas. After Stalingrad, Hitler could no longer relax to music. End quote. Tucker Jones went on to say, Hitler was furious about the surrender. 
but seemed more perturbed by Paulus's failure to take his own life, rather than the needless loss of a quarter of a million men. His chief of staff, Zeitzler, remarked, it's quite impossible to explain how this happened. He knew only too well how it happened. The effect of this defeat on Hitler's Eastern Front allies was catastrophic. Zhukov noted astutely, because of the rout of the German, Italian, and Romanian armies in the Volga and the Don area, and later of the Hungarian armies in the ostrogoz rossosh operation, Germany's influence on its allies declined drastically. Discord and friction set in when the Allies lost faith in Hitler's leadership and wanted to break out of the web of war into which he had enmeshed these countries. End quote. Interestingly, Paulus insisted, so the commander of the Sixth Army in Stalingrad, Friedrich Paulus, insisted he did not surrender. He said, I was taken by surprise. He later signed a statement against Hitler which the Soviets used in propaganda. A number of the captured generals from Stalingrad were taken to Moscow, where they joined the National Committee for a Free Germany. It did not do much other than feed more Soviet propaganda. Now, just to sum up, I got these statistics uh, from Wikipedia. The Axis suffered between 747,000 to 1,068,000 combat casualties, killed, wounded, or captured among all branches of the German armed forces and their allies in Stalingrad. The 6th Army itself, just from the 21st of August, so when they more or less arrived in Stalingrad to the end of the battle, 282,606 casualties. The 4th Panzer Army over that period lost 17,293. Army Group Dawn, the group reorganized in December to try to rescue the situation, lost 55,260 from the 1st of December 1942 to the end of the battle in January 1943. This includes 12,727 killed, 37,627 wounded, and 4,906 missing. The impact in the USSR was, as you'd expect, the opposite. Bells rang out in Moscow to announce the surrender. Morale soared in every sector of the armed forces. Generals got ostentatious promotions and decorations. Outside the USSR, the victory emboldened the Allies and resistance movements around the world. King George VI of the UK ordered the forging of a ceremonial sword of Stalingrad to be presented to the city. However, the celebration could not hide the terrifying cost of the victory at Stalingrad. According to Zhukov, German losses in the Volga-Don-Stalingrad area just from 19 November 1942 to 2 February 1943 amounted to 32 divisions destroyed, with another 16 having lost 50 to 75% of their effective strength. This totaled about 1.5 million men, 3,500 tanks and assault guns, 12,000 guns, and 3,000 aircraft. With hindsight, we can see that the period from August 1942 to February 1943 was the turning point of the war in every theater from the Pacific to Asia to Europe Africa, and the Atlantic. We can see from this time that overall, the Allies now held the initiative. Of course, at the time, that wasn't always obvious, and it would be a long, difficult, blood-soaked road to the end of the war. And that was another long episode. So thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa. Still the only podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of the Second World War. As always, you can get a better understanding of the progress of the positions of the cities and so on through the maps on the website. And I've also put some photos on there and a couple of links for your edification. So just go to beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. By the way, you can also listen to the episode and all the episodes on my own website, 
writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner. If you like this episode, consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. Putting up a, a ranking or a review helps spread the word to others interested in history. It makes the podcast easier to find. I want to thank everyone who has supported the podcast through Patreon up to this point. And remember, you can support the podcast for any amount, monthly or one-time donation. Just go to patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa. All Patreon supporters get advanced access to new episodes and bonus episodes. You have something to add, something to say, something to correct, a question to ask. Let me know. Reach out to contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or you can find Beyond Barbarossa on Facebook and I'm going to be setting up a Discord page as well. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry and I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>